0: Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're ready to study the word this evening and we can be spiritually prepared. So after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful, thankful that we can be here this evening, recognizing that all that we have, all that we are, all the many blessings that we have in our lives all come from you. And for that, we are so grateful that we have you to go to, you to turn to, and that you are intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. Father, we pray as we study your word today that we can be encouraged by it, strengthened by it as we come to understand your plan, your purposes, your work in our lives, and that we can be reminded that no matter how... Uh, Difficult things may be, there's always hope that you always provide strength and you always encourage us with your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the first part of Romans in the opening part of the salutation in Romans 1, 1 through 4. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Last time (coughs) we just got through the first couple of verses. I want to go back and point out a couple of other things uh, in addition to what we covered uh last time. The opening begins with the standard address that Paul has in all of his all of his epistles, which is typical of the writing style of the first century. We have uh thousands of copies of correspondence from different uh people, Greeks, Romans, in that uh, period of time, and they all began, uh their letters in a very similar way. However, what Paul does do in terms of his opening uh, greeting, which we don't get to until we get down to the uh, seventh verse, uh, is his use of the term grace and peace in a way that is similar to but different from what was standard at, in the first century. So we began last time by just going over a few things about the Apostle Paul. And as I thought about it, in light of our study in Acts, and then after our return from Kiev, we'll we'll uh, get into Colossians some, I thought that it might be uh, beneficial to just have a sort of a summary or synopsis for everybody on the life of Paul. And I think that if we start with a rather broad uh, type of structure on the life of Paul, and then as we go through Acts and we go through some other things, and begin to add detail to that, then it will help you organize and structure uh, information we get on the on the life of Paul. Uh, he, I'm going to divide this into basically uh, four sections: his birth to his spiritual rebirth. So birth to conversion will be the first part. The second part is going to look at the period of time from the conversion to the time that he goes on his first missionary journey. Then the third division will cover the three missionary journeys. And then the fourth division is uh, Jerusalem, Rome, and beyond. So just those four sections, the first part from his birth to conversion the second part from his conversion to the beginning of his uh, career as uh, going out as, on the three missionary journeys. Then the third is going to be the section of the missionary journeys themselves. And then the fourth is uh, Jerusalem, Rome, and beyond. So, birth to conversion, as I pointed out last time, the most that we can guess is that he's born somewhere between. AD 5 and AD 15 because at the time that Stephen was stoned, uh, we're told at the end of the chapter that the uh, people laid their cloaks, their garments at the feet of a young man named Paul. So that term would be applied to someone uh, probably not over 30 and not uh, someone necessarily much younger than 20. So if he's born, if that's true in 35, if he's as young as 20 and 35, then he would have been um, born, uh, at 15. If he's, uh, a little bit older, then he would, could have been born as early as five. So he's born and he spends much of his time in Jerusalem. So I'm going to try to identify each section of time with a, a general location. So that first time, he's, he, he's mostly associated with Jerusalem. He, as I pointed out last time, he was born in Tarsus. Uh, Tarsus is located up in what is now modern Turkey. Uh, it's located uh, it was on major trade routes. It was a significant city. His father was a Roman citizen and apparently a man of some means, and he had a tent-making business, which is where Paul would have learned uh, that particular business. But we know that pretty early on uh, he was sent to Jerusalem. Now, regarding his background, he states several times with uh, the emphasis on the fact that he was of the tribe of Benjamin and that he was a Pharisee. In Philippians 3.5, he tells us that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of the Hebrews. Now, that's an important phrase because in the early church, you, at the time of the early church, uh, in the first century, there's a division between Hellenized Jews—that is, those who are in the uh, uh, diaspora, and those who are uh, in Judea; those who are strictly following the traditions of the fathers, and those who have become more attuned to the culture of the Greek uh, Greek civilization around them—and so uh, Paul is uh, states that he's a Hebrew, born of the Hebrews, emphasizing his roots in. First century Judaism and the fact that his family would have been strict observers of the law. In Galatians 1, 13 through 14, he says that of this period, you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my, of my father's. Also, he tells us a little bit more in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 4 and following. He says, although a, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh in terms of his own background and what he had produced from his own efforts, his own, uh, his own morality as opposed to depending upon God. He says, if anyone else, else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And again, he reiterates he who circumcised the eighth day of the nation Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee. So he again, he's emphasizing that in terms of obedience, uh, following all of the uh, uh, mitzvah of, uh, of the Torah, he was consistent. He, if anybody could have worked their way into heaven and into God's favor, then uh, Paul could have done that. But he conc- says to goes on to describe this in verses 6 and 7. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. And as to the righteousness which is found in the law, that would be the Hebrew tzedakah, the righteousness there, same as dikaiosune uh, in the Greek, the righteousness before God. He says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, he was blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, he said, whatever I had accomplished, however, however consistent I was, it was lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, he says in verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but uh, rubbish, so that I may gain. The word's a little stronger in the Greek. It's skubala, and it means dung, manure, something of that order. Um, Count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. So he's contrasting his first part of his life between his birth and his uh, conversion to Christianity to be a time when he was consistently obedient to the law and zealous and pursuing righteousness on the basis of the Torah more than any other. And then he recognized that that just never would be good enough. So he says, as to the righteousness of my own derived from the law, uh, that was uh, just rubbish. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the only basis for salvation is that we are given righteousness that comes from God. It's not something we produce on our own. And so we see the picture of the young, the young Saul as someone who was zealous, someone who was incredibly bright, brilliant, uh, who moved to, uh, was moved by his family uh, to, re- to Jerusalem uh, very early on. In fact, in Acts 22, verse 3, uh, Paul states, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as you all are uh, today. Now there's some, uh, there's some debate over the exact meaning of the phrase in that verse that he was brought up in this city. Does that mean that Paul was moved there when he was very young and uh, lived his whole life there? We know from Another passage in Acts that he lived with his uh, uh, sister's family in, in Jerusalem or did he come uh, after he was bar mitzvah when he was about 14 uh, years of age. The phrase that is translated brought up in this city uh, at the feet of Gamaliel is the verb there to be brought up is from the Greek word anatrepho, which can also mean train or to educate. So when it talks about, when he says that he was brought up in this city, we might translate that he was reared in this city, but what does that mean? Does that mean that he was there from the time he was very young or that he just received his primary education and training as a rabbi in that city? And many people believe, some people believe he went there when he was very young, others believe that it was a little older when he was about 14, which is probably the best way to understand that, I would think, he was, that he was sent there when he was 14 to study under Gamaliel, who's one of the foremost rabbis uh, in that period of history. And there's even been some speculation that, um, that uh, Saul of Tarsus uh, contributed portions in the Talmud as a, as the brightest student of, of Gamaliel, it can't really be proven. Many people speculate this because there is a reference in the uh, Tractate uh, Shabbat in the uh, in the Talmud that there was an unnamed pupil of Gamaliel who manifested quote impudence in matters of learning and tried to refute his master. And so there's speculation that that's a an allusion to the Apostle Paul as one who had, you know, left his path and deviated from the course of of uh, Judaism. But there's, there's no way to uh, prove that. It's just interesting to speculate that with the brilliant mind that he had, the education that he had, that he would have made some sort of mark or contra- contribution perhaps uh, prior to uh, his conversion to Christianity. So we have that first period of his life. And just think of it in terms of his birth to his conversion, and he 's born about five to fifteen, and this would extend to the period of about uh, thirty five now we 're fairly sure on the date of thirty five if Jesus was crucified in thirty three then the stoning of Stephen would have taken place early early in thirty five Then the second period is his the period from his conversion to being a missionary, and that involves three locations first first period, one location in Jerusalem. The second period is three locations. He is saved on the way to Damascus. He's received authorization from the, uh, S- uh, Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to arrest those who are followers of Jesus in Damascus and to accuse them of being troublemakers, to uh, put them in prison. In some cases, some were executed. And so it is on the way to Damascus that Jesus appeared to him, uh, on the, on the road and said, uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Referring to his attacks against the body of Christ or the church. And then Saul is blinded by the light. He's commissioned by the Lord to then take the, take the gospel to the Gentiles, and he's sent to Damascus where in three days Ananias, a man would come to him named Ananias who would uh, return, restore his sight. Well, he stayed in Damascus for three years, and he had somewhat of an, an interesting ministry there. And he would always—he was very confrontational in his approach to those who were hostile to Christianity. So he just did a, a quick 180. And of course, there were those back in Jerusalem who had heard some things, but they were somewhat suspicious. So he's in Damascus for three years. He's in Jerusalem, and he is on his first trip to Jerusalem, and he causes a lot of trouble. He's very uh, confrontational. Creates a lot of, uh, uh, a real disputatious atmosphere, let's say. He's only there for, according to Galatians 1, he's only there for 15 days. So, and then he left and they sent him back to to his hometown of Tarsus. And as I pointed out in Acts, it says that, uh, and then there was peace in Jerusalem. And then he spent somewhere around 10 to 14 years in Tarsus. So, first division, birth to conversion, He's mostly in Jerusalem during that period, depending on how, when he was born, how long he's actually in Jerusalem. He's raised in Tarsus, has his education training in Jerusalem, then conversion uh, to missionaries primarily in Damascus, two weeks in Jerusalem, and then he heads to Tarsus, where he is ministers in obscurity for ten years. And then during that time, it is the church in Antioch, that is established and begins to grow. And as they begin to grow, there is the desire to send out missionaries to carry the gospel. And one of the leaders in the church in Antioch is a man named Barnabas, and he remembers um, young Saul. And so he sends for him in Tarsus to bring him to Antioch. And uh, so, so then Saul, now known as Paul, he goes to antioch and it is from the church in antioch that he and barnabas are sent out on a on the first missionary journey and they take with them a young man by the name of john mark and so he goes on three missionary journeys the first missionary journeys rather short he goes to crete he goes to the southern part of turkey uh, the towns of uh, lystra derby um, iconium uh, antioch uh, Pisidian, Pisidian Antioch, there another city also named Antioch in the southern part of uh, Turkey, and they go through and then they loop back follow, to follow up on the churches they had started, and then they headed back to give an account in in um, back in Antioch, and they were gone for a little over a year, about a year and a half. They left in the summer of uh, A.D. thirty-five, and they are out on that first missionary journey. Uh, excuse me, A.D. 48. From April of 48, they're out on that missionary journey until September of 49, so it's about a year and a half. Then they winter there in Antioch. Uh, Also at that same time, they'll go to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. Then there's a second journey where he goes back, revisited some of the churches that that he went to the first time. Then he heads northwest. Uh, at At Troas, he goes across to Greece, goes through Greece to uh, Philippi, to uh, Thessalonica, to um, uh, Berea, down to Athens and Corinth, and then he goes back to um, Ephesus and then on back to Antioch. On the third journey, uh, he will retrace his visit to Greece, uh, and on the third journey, the second journey was from April of 51 to September of 52, again about eighteen. 18- About 18 months. At the end of the first journey, he writes one book, Galatians. Second journey, writes two books, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Then on the third journey, he retraces his visit to Greece. And from September of 53 to May of 57. So he's gone for about four years this time. And this is when he writes three books, 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans. So three journeys. First journey, one book Galatians, second journey, writes two books first and second Thessalonians, third journey, three books, first and Second Corinthians and Romans. Then he is on his way to Jerusalem, at which time he will be arrested. He will appeal to Caesar. Uh, he will be kept in um, uh, in somewhat soft house, house arrest in Caesarea. And then eventually he is sent to Rome on the way there's a shipwreck. He ends up in Rome. He's under house arrest in Rome, somewhat comfortable, for two years before he is released. Now that takes you to the end of Acts. And the rest is sort of speculation based on some things said in First and Second Timothy and in Titus. But it's generally believed by most conservative Bible scholars that he went on a fourth journey. And this took him to Spain, possibly to England, Uh, back down to Crete, to several cities in Macedonia and Greece. And during this time, he wrote 1 Timothy as well as Titus. Then he is uh, arrested again, imprisoned again in Rome. Uh, This is uh, when uh, Nero burns down the city and blames it on the Christians. Paul is imprisoned for approximately two years, and then he is decapitated by Nero in 67. So you have these... basically four periods, the birth to conversion, born about 5 to 15 A.D., primarily in Jerusalem where he gets his training. Then uh, when he's on his way to Damascus, there's, he has his conversion. He's in Damascus three years, two weeks in Jerusalem. Then he heads back to Tarsus where he is in obscurity for uh, eight to ten years, something of that nature. Then he goes on three missionary journeys. And on those journeys, he goes, to, takes the gospel either directly or through those he trained indirectly to most of what is now Turkey. Also, he went to Greece, uh, went to uh, Thrace in the north, all the way down to um, Corinth in the south. And uh, over those three journeys, then he headed to Jerusalem. That's the third stage, Jerusalem, Rome, and beyond, where he goes to Jerusalem. He's imprisoned in Rome the first time. After he's released, he goes to Spain, revisits Greece and Turkey, some of the churches there. Then he's arrested again and um, imprisoned in Rome for two years, and is executed in sixty-seven. So, if you just think of those four basic divisions to his life, and primarily the heart of it is those three missionary journeys, then his uh, journey from Jerusalem to Rome, the first imprisonment, uh, possibly a fourth, uh, fourth journey and then his arrest and martyrdom in 67. That gives you the overview for the life of the Apostle Paul, which covers most of Acts 9, roughly Acts 9 to the end of of the book of Acts. So that gives you a good handle on, on his, on his life. As I pointed out last time, there are three things he emphasized at the beginning. uh, In his first verse, he's a bondservant or he is a slave to Jesus Christ. I pointed out that that same word slave is indicated and used in Romans chapter 6, that we are born slaves to sin, but after salvation, because the sin nature is crucified with Christ, we are to be slaves of righteousness. That comes first. We are to recognize our obedience to God, and then that precedes our service to God. Then he is called, this indicates his divine commission from the Lord Jesus Christ, called an apostle. And then third, he was set apart or separated for the purpose of the gospel of God. Now that phrase, the gospel of God, becomes the really the head phrase for the next three verses. The next three verses, verses two, three, and four, are going to then ex- explain more about the gospel, so that we have this as we um, uh, let me see, get to this Oop, went too far there we go. When we get down to verse two, it begins with a relative clause which he that is God the Father, which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures. So verse two explains the gospel, that the gospel is something which didn't just begin with Jesus, it didn't begin with Paul, it had its roots in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets are the ones who prepared uh, the people of God, Israel, to accept the Messiah. Now, this last Sunday, we're, we're seeing the study on Sunday morning that I'm doing, plus a little bit tonight, uh, Intersect which is always fun when that happens, I'm just doing a little bit more of an overview on this whole issue of how the prophets prepared Israel for the coming of Messiah tonight. But on the Sunday morning series, because it's Christmas time, I'm focusing a little more on, on the Messiah and what the Old Testament predicted for the Messiah, how we know the Old Testament was truly predicting a Messiah. And looking at the, the just about four or five key verses that are central to understanding the role of the Messiah. There's some. There's over a hundred verses uh, related to the Messiah, the coming King, the Son of David, the Greater, the Son of Jesse, etc., uh, from the Old Testament that indicate everything there is to know, so that Israel could identify the Messiah when the Messiah came, and um, over a hundred verses. Uh, we'll just look at a few of those, but there are over 100. Now, there's about 150 others that were not fulfilled the first time because there's one set of prophecies that focuses on uh, a suffering Messiah, and then there's another set that uh, focuses on a ruling Messiah. Jesus came the first time, and he fulfills the first set of prophecies. Of, uh, prophecies because he was sent to suffer to die on the cross for sin. And then the second time he will, when he returns, that's when he fulfills the uh, prophecies related to glorification. So Paul immediately gets to the issue. He's separated to the gospel of God. And then we have a three verse um, diversion here where he makes several points related to the gospel. First of all, it was promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And this is standard procedure through, with all through the New Testament is to take the, the, uh, uh, reader back to Old Testament prophecies to show just how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. This is the same method Jesus used as I pointed out last time in Luke 24, 44 to 46 when he opened the eyes of two of his disciples. One of them was named Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other. And he, op- verse 45 says, he opened their understanding that they may comprehend the scriptures, that all the scriptures from the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the three divisions of the uh, Hebrew Bible, the Torah, the uh, Nevi'im, the prophets, and the writings, that also known in Hebrew as the Ketuvim. So we have a number of uh, passages I pointed out here last time that relate to the coming of the Messiah. Now, I want to go through these a little bit. I picked about eight or nine just to hit some of the high points related to his birth. The claim that that Paul is making here in verse uh, 3 is that these prophe- prophecies concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now that verse focuses on the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that in his humanity he is a descendant of David as prophesied in the Old Testament. So we see a movement in the prophecies from general to specific, from what and part of this we studied this last uh, Sunday morning. Genesis 3.15 predicts that it will be the seed of the woman who will defeat the serpent, the serpent being Satan, the one who inhabited or dwelt or spoke through the uh, serpent in Genesis 3.15. And we see the shift to the third person singular pronoun, he, meaning uh, meaning the seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head, addressing the serpent. So the seed of the woman will, will bruise the uh, head or trample on the head of the serpent, and you, that is the serpent, shall uh, trample on uh, his heel. And as I pointed out on Sunday morning, it appears from this verse that what happens is a that they each strike a fatal blow on the other. But it is necessary for the seed of the woman to defeat the seed, to defeat the serpent through his own death, and then he will be raised from the dead. Now this is fulfilled. Galatians 4-4 points out that when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. I pointed out Sunday morning that going back as far as, um, as the uh, major rabbis during the first century and before, that this verse had been considered to be a messianic verse in Judaism. And it wasn't until the 10th century AD that there were some rabbis who began to uh, offer or suggest an alternate interpretation. But this verse historically by both Christians and Jews had been understood to be messianic. So the New Testament claims that This was fulfilled in Jesus, that he's born of a woman, that the Messiah had to be born of a woman, indicating that the Messiah had to be fully human. Only someone who is fully human can die as a substitute, a true, genuine, actual, real substitute for human beings. Second key prophecy is that the seed of the woman would Come through a virgin birth, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself uh, will give you a sign. Isaiah the prophet is speaking. He is addressing King Ahaz, who was one of the evil kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. And it is at a time uh, when the northern kingdom of Israel has gone into an alliance uh, with the Syrians, and they are threatening to uh attack and conquer the southern kingdom of Judah, but not just do that. They want to replace uh the king in Jerusalem with someone of their own uh their own choosing. And so it is a direct attack against the house of David. And of course it goes back to the promise God had made to David that there would always be someone uh, from his Descendants from his seed who would sit on the throne of David. And so the threat now is to the house of David. And so God told Ahaz through Isaiah to ask for a sign. And Ahaz, in his false humility, said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to test God. And yet it was God who had told him to ask for a sign. So Isaiah said, the Lord will give you a sign anyway. Behold the virgin, and it has an article with the uh, noun virgin. It's not just any virgin. It is the virgin, and the use of the article was designed to get his attention. Uh, There was a thread of thought within uh, Judaism at that time, the Old Testament uh, prophets, that the virgin refers to the woman who will give birth to the seed. So the the use of the article emphasizes a unique individual woman that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, there's always a little dispute there over the meaning of the word that's translated virgin. There's two different words that are used in the Hebrew uh, that could have been used. One is betula, and the other is alma. Betula uh, has some problems with it. It's not always used of a virgin. Alma Refers to a younger woman of marriageable age, who, but it's it's not necessarily or doesn't have its its inherent meaning, the idea of a virgin. However, when the rabbis translated this into Greek in the second third century B.C., they understood it, that it was referring to a virgin. Translated it in the Septuagint with the word the Greek word parthenos, meaning virgin, but. The context indicates that it must be a virgin. The word can mean that. It it can have a little broader meaning, but it means a young woman of marriageable age. But it's no sign for a young woman of marriageable age to become pregnant without being married. That's you know, That happens all the time. The sign is that this is something unique, something that is... Uh, almost that, that is impossible, something that is miraculous, and that is that there is a virgin that will conceive and bear a son, and this son's name will be Emmanuel, which is Hebrew for God is with us. This is fulfilled in the announcement that Gabriel the angel gave to Mary when she announced that she was pregnant, that God the Holy Spirit had caused her to uh, to be pregnant with the uh, humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ and it says that uh, Matthew 118 says now the birth of Jesus was as follows after his uh, mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found with the holy spirit and i only got Matthew 118 but if you go on down and read uh just below that i probably typed in the wrong uh typed in the wrong verse the Gabriel says that um, he will be called Emmanuel. And quotes from Isaiah seven fourteen, and verse 20, that's in Matthew one eighteen. should be one eighteen to 23. Behold, the virgin shall be a child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then there are the prophecies related to calling Jesus the Son of God, Psalm 2.7 identifies the Lord's anointed, the word Hebrew word Mashiach, as the Son of God. In Psalm 2.7, God, Yahweh, is speaking, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is fulfilled in passages such as Matthew 3.17 at the baptism of of, uh, Jesus by John the Baptist, a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We also know that he will be a descendant of Abraham. Genesis twenty-two eighteen God promised that Abraham that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is fulfilled in passages such as Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Numbers 24.17 tells us that he'll be a descendant from Jacob. Uh, I see him, but not now. I, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And so there is the uh allusion to a star, which is then uh, fulfilled in the uh, birth at the time of the birth of Jesus when there is a special star that is seen in the heavens. Now, just a word about that star. Every year you're going to, this time of year, you're going to read in National Geographic or watch one of those specials in the History Channel or Discovery Channel or one of the other shows, and they're going to try to explain the star as a normal phenomenon. A natural phenomenon, the confluence of Jupiter and Mars and a couple of other planets or whatever that uh, created this sign, and then they always try to track back to some time at that time. But this is um, not what was seen, not what's referred to in uh, Luke chapter two, because uh, as we re- as, as you read in the Matthew account, they saw that the, with the Magi rather, not Luke two but Matthew two, in the Magi account. They saw a sign in the heavens, saw his star, and then they follow the star, and the star takes them directly to the house where the Lord Jesus is staying. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to follow a star to a house, but stars are so far away that they can't indicate any particular individual uh, house. So this was a special star. I believe it was the uh, glory of God that was shining the Shekinah, that was shining to indicate the location of the birth of Jesus. <coughs> that Jesus was a descendant of Jacob f- is uh, pointed out in the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, verse 34. Also, the promise in Genesis 49.10, which I touched on Sunday morning, uh, is <coughs> Jacob was uh, pronouncing uh, prophecies over each of his sons In relation to Judah, he said, "...the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes." And this has always been understood, both by Jews and Christians, as a messianic verse, indicating that the Messiah would come from the the descendants of Judah, or the tribe of Judah. And this is indicated in Luke chapter 3, that uh, Jesus' descent is through the line of Judah." Jesus is also indicated as being a son of David. Uh, <clears throat> Isaiah 11.1 1 also points out he's a descendant of Jesse. That's David's father. So to be a descendant of David would also mean you were a descendant of, of Jesse. But that's uh, just, another, just another reference. I didn't put that in on a slide. Jeremiah three five. Behold, the days are coming that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. So the Messiah is referred to as a branch, and in Isaiah 11:1 and Isaiah 11:10, um, the Messiah is referred to as coming as a branch coming out of the root of Jesse. So there is a consistency there in the use of that metaphor of a branch, that uh, Jesus is a, a branch from David. Uh, passages such as, um, let me go back. Uh, Passages such as Luke 3.31 indicates that Jesus is of direct descent through Nathan, the son of David, not through Solomon. Solomon is listed in the Matthew genealogy, but the Solomonic line, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago when we were finishing up Kings, the Solomonic line went through all of the kings of Judah down to Jeconiah, also known as Coniah, and God announced that no descendant of Coniah would sit on the throne of, of Israel. And so the heir to David could not come through the Solomonic line. The heir to David goes through the line of Nathan. The purpose for the genealogy in Matthew is to show that Joseph can't be the daddy. Because Joseph comes from Coniah and the Coniah line. So, the Matthew genealogy is showing that Joseph can't be the physical father of Jesus, or Jesus would be disqualified. It also points out that in that on both sides uh, through the adoptive side of Joseph as well as the uh, the birth side with Mary, both sides go back to David, but the uh, line through which the um, the the ruling right would go, would come down through Nathan, the son of David, down to Mary. He's born in Bethlehem. Micah five two specifically states that out of Bethlehem would come one uh, who would be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. The only way you can have somebody born in Bethlehem whose goings forth are from everlasting, that indicates eternity, is if that person that is born is also eternal deity. So again and again and again in the Old Testament, these prophecies that are made about the Messiah emphasize that he is going to be born of a woman, is going to be born of a virgin. He is going to be born in the line of David. He is going to be true humanity, but he's called mighty God. He is called, he, he is from everlasting, so the attributes of deity are also uh, assigned to him. He's called uh, Emmanuel, Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew one twenty three. I know I had that right. That other slide was just out of order or wrong. Okay. So in Romans 1-2, the first relative clause, Paul states that the gospel was promised beforehand by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's the first relative clause. The second clause, prepositional clause, coming in verse 3, also refers back to the head noun, the gospel, Verse 3 isn't an extension of verse 2. Verse 3 is on the same line as verse 3, adding more information related to the gospel. The gospel was concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, there's an emphasis here that Jesus Christ is his son. That emphasizes the pre-existence of Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus did not become the Son of God when he was physically born. He doesn't become the Son of God when he uh, was uh, baptized by John the Baptist. He doesn't become the Son of God at the resurrection. He was eternally the Son of God recognizing that the Father is eternally the Father. These are uh, distinctions or titles that are made to uh, indicate their respective functions and, um, and roles within the plan of God. But Jesus is eternally the Son. So he is referred to here concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus coming from the Hebrew word Yeshua meaning Savior, Christ, the Greek word for uh, the anointed one or appointed one, it is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah, Uh, Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, when I went through, uh, there are many other prophecies I could have picked out as we went through those, but I've tried to focus primarily on the ones that were related to his Physical birth, specifically ones that were related to his uh, being and that uh, seed of David, the descent of David, according to the flesh. Now, if we look at some other prophecies in the Old Testament, there are prophecies in Isaiah that speak of the fact that the Messiah will appear and he will heal many. He will give sight to the blind and he will heal the lame. Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, is one of those passages that emphasizes the role of the Messiah, and this will be one of his signs. Another passage, which I read last time at the conclusion of class in Isaiah chapter 53, is one of the most specific prophecies about the death of the Messiah. In that um, chapter, there are 12 things that are pointed out about the Messiah, that he would be rejected by his people. That he would be called a man of sorrow. That he would live a life of uh, rejection and suffering. That he was, de- fourth, he was despised by others. Uh, fifth, he carried our sorrow, our sins. Uh, sixth, that he was smitten and afflicted by God, res- indicating that he would be judged by God. Uh, seventh, that he was pierced for our transgressions, indicating a substitutionary payment. Eight, again, a substitutionary payment. He was wounded for our sins. Nine, he suffered like a lamb, showing that the sacrificial lamb was a picture of the substitutionary payment of Jesus for our sins. Uh, Tenth, that he would die with the wicked. He had two thieves on either side of him. Uh, Eleven, that he was sinless. He did not deserve uh, the punishment that he received. He had committed no sin and that while he was uh in uh, being punished he would he prayed for others other passages that's all in Isaiah 53 other passages such as Psalm 22:16 indicate that his hands and feet would be pierced uh Zechariah 12:10 indicates that his side would be pierced and in Psalm 22:18 it indicates that they they would cast lots for his garments All of that was fulfilled as uh, prophesied. In terms of chronology, almost the precise week of his death was predicted in the revelation given to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 26. His resurrection was predicted in Psalm 1610, and his ascension was predicted in Psalm 1101 when um, the Lord said to my Lord, I uh, sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies uh, my footstool, footstool. There was a man several, a number of years ago who did some calculating, and he calculated that the probability of 16 predictions of this type that were all made at least 300 years before Jesus came, that the probability of 16, remember there's well over 100 prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus, Uh, at the first advent, that the probability of 16 predictions being fulfilled in one man was on the order of 1 in 10 to the 45th power. That 48 predictions would come true in one person would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's 10 followed by 157 zeros. That's even greater than the national debt. (laughs) It's almost, it's impossible to conceive of anything that large. Even 1 in 10 to the 45th power involving 16 predictions is, for all practical purposes, statistically impossible. That is on the order of someone filling the entire state of Texas with silver dollars. To the depth of four feet. I mean, if we just filled this room to the depth of four feet, it would be uh, virtually impossible for one person to pick out a marked silver dollar if they were blindfolded. But to fill up the entire state to a depth of four feet with silver dollars and to mark one silver dollar, take out some red uh, fingernail polish and color it and throw it out there, stir it into the pot, and then blindfold somebody, the chances of them picking that one. That one uh, silver dollar uh, is is nil it 's the same chance you have whether you whether you buy a lottery ticket or not, you have the same chance of winning, which is nothing right Well, somebody always wins that so but no one would win this that is a that is a statistical impossibility. Nobody would ever do that so that's only sixteen predictions. You multiply that out to one hundred and sixteen predictions. Then it's impossible that this could happen by chance. And yet you had over a hundred prophecies from the Old Testament that were specifically and literally fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what gives us hope and confidence that Jesus isn't just another man. If he was just a man, then he would be, he would either be a lunatic to run around saying that he was God and that he could save people from their sins, or that he would be a, a liar and one of the worst liars uh, I mean, we are to let uh, Madoff go in, in that case. Uh, he would be one of the most uh, egregious deceivers and most horrible of men in all of history to deceive people to that degree. So there's only one rational conclusion, that is, Jesus was who he claimed to be. And so this is what the emphasis that Paul has at the beginning, that uh, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, according to all these prophecies from the Old Testament. Now, as we look at this third verse, he's talking about um, his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, born of the seed of David according to the flesh. That just addresses the one side, the human side. But verse 4 addresses the divine side. And so there's a parallel between the one born of the seed of David according to the flesh, that is, in his humanity, and on the other side, one who was declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, a couple of things that you ought to note there is that this phrase that's in the uh, King, King James or New American Standard, he was declared to be the Son of God, is a bad translation. He's not declared. That's not the meaning of the, of the Greek word. The Greek word is horizo. This is where we get our English word horizon. Horizon is a uh, definition. It defines the end of our sight. We can only see to the horizon. And this that's the meaning of the word. It is something that has boundaries or something that is set, something that is appointed or something that is determined. And so the best uh, translation is that he was appointed not to be the son of God, stop, but to be the son of God with power. He has always been the Son of God, but with the resurrection and His ascension to the right hand of God the Father, He receives a He is now in hypostatic union, and He is awaiting the time that the Father will give Him the kingdom. And so we studied that in the past. That in the ascension He seated the right hand of the Father, waiting for the church age to end, and the Father will give Him the kingdoms of the world. At which time He returns in order to judge the world and prepare for uh, his kingdom. So it is at the ascension, the resurrection rather, that he's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. It's the only time this phrase is used in the New Testament, the only time Paul uses it, but it is another term for the Holy Spirit. And so it's the Holy Spirit who is the one who enabled him in his spiritual life during the incarnation, and then we have the last phrase, uh, by the resurrection from the dead, which should be understood, um, it is a phrase, uh, ex anastasia, which indicates, uh, out from the resurrection from the dead. But the phrase that, 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 he, that Greek preposition, ek, can also mean, uh, have the idea of cause. It can have the meaning of of cause. It can also indicate uh, time or origin or motive. And the best translation is the idea of cause. Because of the resurrection from the dead, he is declared or, excuse me, he is uh, appointed to be the son of God with power. That's one phrase that can't be separated, can't be chopped up he's declared to be the or he's appointed to be the son of god with power uh because of the resurrection from the dead this is what prepares him in his glorified state to then uh take on the and conclude the role of being the um son of man and establishing uh, establishing his kingdom so paul starts off with an orientation, a brief orientation to the gospel, a focus, focal point is on the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he is the Old Testament Messiah and a descendant of David. And then in verse 5, he will go on to add a few more points, 5 through 7, as he completes a salutation, and we'll come back and we'll complete that next time as we get ready to go into the... Uh, second part of the prelude. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning and to uh, our, this evening, and to get into these uh, different prophecies related to uh, the Messiah. Recognizing that Jesus coming was planned, it was prepared for, it was promised. There were prophecies related to it, so that uh, your people would be able to recognize Him and know that He was the one that you had sent to fulfill these promises and prophecies. Father, we pray that we would uh, be mindful of this during this time of year as we prepare for Christmas, that it is not just a time of, of uh, parties, it's not just a time of giving gifts, but it is a time to reflect upon all that you have provided for us in our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.